Hello and welcome to this 13th episode in the second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Ogue-McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever... We are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we'll never, ever charge for these podcasts. However, we are asking you to go and put your money where your mouth is and put your money back into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that is awesome about Irish theatre. So uh, the simplest way for you to go and do that is to go and buy yourself some tickets. Maybe that's to a theatre near you, That maybe that's a trip to a city nearby, maybe it's a local amateur group, whatever it is, go and buy yourself some tickets reinvest in the world of Irish theatre. Um, and, you know, maybe if ticket prices are slightly outside your reach this week or this month, maybe check out one of the crowdsourcing websites, the Fundit.ies, the Indiegogos, all of those ones. See if there's a theatre project over there that you feel might be deserving of your support. Donations often start from as low as a fiver, and there are always great rewards in return for those donations. So do go and check those out. And, of course, as we always tell you, there's a whole heap of ways you can support without even putting your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast. That's a real help for us. And the more you can help get the word out about us, the more we can help get the word out about Irish theatre. So get the link out there. Tell people in person over a cup of coffee or a pint or on a stroll, but get the link out on Facebook or retweet it on Twitter. And um, Do go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. And of course, these podcasts are all streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie if you're not part of the Apple Mafia. Um, you can go back and listen to all our other episodes. Do please leave us a review over on iTunes or simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. That's a massive help for us and doesn't take a huge amount out of your day. And as ever, of course, you can follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And it's been another busy week here at Rise Towers. Um, again, this time of year is always about juggling those admin-y practical stuff that you need to do behind the scenes to make all the wonderful, glamorous, show-busy stuff happen on stage down the road. So it's been busy. We're cooking up plans for a couple of tours, actually, as it happens. Um, we're putting all the finishing touches to what's going to be uh, the big tour of... The Good Father, Christian O'Reilly's incredible play that we produced late last year. We're going to take that back out on the road. So we've been casting for that this week and holding auditions and stuff, which has been a real eye-opener for me. Um, very strange to be on the other side of that table for once. Um, but brilliant, lovely people coming in. We've got some great uh, great things coming down the line for that show. I think it's going to be lovely to get back out on the road with it in what effect is going to be a whole new cast. So that's exciting too. I'm very, very, very charged up for getting back in the rehearsal room for that and, and rediscovering Christian's crack and play. And then, of course, we have our other show, which will be touring later this autumn time, which I am not allowed to talk about yet. So I have to do that stupid showbiz thing where I put a lot of intrigue around it and go, oh, it's going to be exciting. But look, I'll tell you all about it in due course. You know I will, because you know i got to sell you those tickets. Um, we will be revealing all as we get closer to the time when it's time to announce. And so that brings us to our guest this week, who is none other than the brilliant Dr. Tanya Dean. Now, myself and Tanya Dean go back an 
awful long way. Um, we were in the trenches together on the next stage back at the Dublin Theatre Festival a couple of years ago. And Tanya is an incredible woman who has, for my money, struck this incredible balance between the theory around theatre and the practice around theatre. And so she is um, a working freelance dramaturg, working on shows all the time, but also has her role in academia and doing all this incredible research around theatre. And it's a really interesting story, and her route to that position is also intriguing. And I've been lucky enough to work with Tanya in her role as associate dramaturg of Then This Theatre with the great Aoife Spillane Hinks. And I just think she's an all-round awesome person. So look, let's get straight to it. Here it is, the brilliant Dr. Tanya Dean. The wonderful Tanya Dean in the house. I'm so glad to finally have you here at last. How the hell are you? I'm good and good. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of the podcast. Well, is it true to say that you are the original superfan? I think it's probably fair to say I was obsessed with the 2011 series. I lost a stone thanks to the Irish (laughs) podcast. That's incredible. Is that true? That's that's true. When I started listening to the podcast, I'd also just started going to the gym for the first time as an adult woman. And I would just get on the elliptical, stick in the podcast, and your dulcet tones would see me through like 45 minutes, and I lost a stone. And baby, look at me now. (laughs) That's fantastic. I am glad I have made at least that contribution to the World Virus Theatre, if nothing else. Dean, um, take me back to the very beginning. Uh, At what stage did a life and career in the world of theatre occur to you? And then I guess the follow-on from that is, and at what stage did you think or realise that it would take the form of academia rather than uh, this form? That's an excellent question. Well, uh, I think my kind of gateway drug (laughs) to theatre, I think it was the same as a lot of Irish people's, is it was the school nativity play. Amazing. That first time I'd done the blue towel... As Virgin held tiny tears in my arms. I just, I just knew. Um, I think I was always into drama as a kid. Yeah. Uh, I was, in hindsight, very precocious, uh, kind of uh, irritating theatre kid. Mm, amazing. Yeah, uh, not for my parents. Um, I did speech and drama uh, all through uh, primary school, secondary school, and going through college. Uh, a brilliant teacher called Vivian Doolan who was really encouraging and she not just kind of got me through speech and drama of like learning how to be comfortable speaking in public and perform but she also started bringing me in on the coaching side so I got to get my first kind of bite of the teaching bug okay and I growing up I was like I'm gonna be an actor right I'm gonna be the actoriest actor that ever acted this is gonna be brilliant and I can't tell you exactly at what point that changed because I went to Trinity after a brief detour into journalism because a guidance counsellor uh, automatic test told me that I should be a journalist. I was like, that sounds like a plan. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is a secret for me. I didn't know this. It's, it's kind of like the last year of my youth because I did, well, I started the journalism degree in DIT and got two weeks into a four-year degree and went, whoops. No, nope. as quick as that. Wrong. Yeah, and it was a fantastic course. There was there was nothing wrong with it. It was just so so clearly like, this is wrong. I do not want to do this. I don't fit here. I, and I had a chat with my parents, and I was a pretty feckless eighteen year old. Okay. I was smart enough to get away with stuff, but I wasn't that committed to anything. Yeah. And I said, listen, this is the wrong fit. You know, and I know that if I drop out now, I'm gonna do nothing for a year. I will kind of faff around part-time jobs and struggle to get back so here's the bargain I strike with you Dean parents 
I want to try drama. I want to go for it. So if I finish out this year, stick with it, do the best I can, and then try and transfer, do we have a deal? And they kind of went, mm, yeah, okay. They'd always been incredibly supportive about the drama thing. Uh, God love them. <laughs> so at the end of a year in a, tra- uh, in a journalism degree, of which the only thing I still retain is touch typing. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I applied for various drama courses and I ended up going to Trinity to do their two-subject moderatorship. So I did drama with classics. What I like to call the real drama degree. As, as do I. Yeah, nice. And like, as opposed to like the journalism degree where two weeks and I was like, oh, Oops, no, wrong. Uh, I remember the first time walking through Front Art at Trinity, and you know, there's just that point when you get into Front Square where just the noise so just falls away. Yes. And having that moment, yeah, okay, yeah, this. And that just didn't go away for four years. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm so delighted that you've done even more college than I thought you had, which is quite an achievement. Did you want to know a number? No, I think it'll terrify me. Go on, throw it at me. Uh, let's see. One year journalism, four years Trinity, three years MFA, five years for the... 13 years. I spent 13 years uh, in college, not including as a lecturer. That is absolutely yeah. amazing. I absolutely adore it. So talk to me about your time in Trinity then. Um, what, how useful was teaming up the classics with drama? And did you go down the route that so many did of throwing yourself headfirst into players? Uh, classics and drama was a great fit for me, uh, just because it, it, this may shock and amaze you, Ingo, but I am something of a nerd. No way! I know, I know. Um, but it just, it allowed kind of a bit of both. It allowed me to kind of have the nerdy nerdy side of theatre, of mm. really kind of starting to be like, oh yeah, I really like reading things and writing things and arguing things, yeah! Uh, and uh, having as well possibly like, oh my, I love learning about things. I love kind of the kind of rabbit hole of delving into information about all these kind of arcane but glorious things. And Greek tragedy kind of was where those two men that remains a deep love. I was not, I think players, the only two things I did in four years was I produced, I think, one of the first Irish productions of the Vagina Monologues. Excellent. Getting sponsorship for that in <laughs> late 90s, early 2000s Dublin was not easy. Um, and I played non-speaking prostitute number two in the 24 Hours musical of Guys and Dolls. That's a, that's a coveted role. I mean, it's the part I was born to play. I've always said that, not to your face. Um, <laughs> I've crossed the line already. I've, I've already crossed the line. I'm delighted. That's Well, we've got it out of the way. Exactly. Um, that's all right, Dean. Um, so, so the, the academic end of it suited you and suited you quickly. Mm-hmm. As you're going through those four years... What was in your mind? Was it, I'm enjoying this for the experience of this and it will make me a fuller, rounder person? Or were you at that stage thinking, okay, how do I make this my living? Mm. That's a really good question. And again, I'm not sure when the shift happened. Because again, I want to be like, I'm going to be an actor. It's going to be brilliant. As I understand it, I do this degree and then I walk out and people have me acting jobs. It's going to be sweet. Precisely how it works. And, um, and like I said, I wasn't involved in players and I was looking back on that... Uh, thinking about it kind of in, in anticipation of this interview and I was thinking okay I would not have been copped on enough to realise this at the time but part of the reason I, didn't, I wasn't so involved was that players was something that really rewarded people who wanted to be part of something as opposed to people who wanted things to be done for them Okay. and I just wasn't that copped on uh, and when you look at people who came out from players at that time, they're all people like, you know, Keen O'Brien, Connor Hanratty, um, Sarah Jane Shields, who were just, they were always in the middle of things, 
if it wasn't their project, they were still there supporting. Yeah. I just wasn't that copped on, I'm that socially adept, and I now realise with a rueful smile, that talented. No, okay. And uh, and it was just as I was going through university and kind of realising, oh, acting, not my strong point. Uh, uh, but just loving those moments in lectures when you've all read a play, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I see you've met my college experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're talking, there, there's some kind of new information, new lens, new way of looking at it. And it's, you're having a debate with, you know, a classmate or a lecturer and you're both really intensely kind of like trying to make your points and there's just that shift where suddenly your way of looking at this just, it's like two gears that had been running kind of slightly off suddenly click in and there's this whole new revelation about it. I was like, this I love. This yeah. ability to like find new ways of looking and thinking about things and you know talking to people and hearing their ideas. And I started to realize that, you know, not only was acting not what I was good at, but it wasn't where I was finding joy. Well, there you go. And those moments were when I got to be like in those great kind of conversations, even if they were like, you know, flat out arguments. Yeah. That was joyful for me and I started to realize more and more like oh academics do this for a living yeah. this is a living this is a thing I could do so I suppose uh, I don't know what it was but at some point in the college years I realized I fit in academia I could do well here I want to do this yeah. I want to have I want to always be able to spend time kind of thinking and digging and arguing and, and teaching as well uh, so I knew that I wanted to go the academic route by the time I graduated. But I was also at least self-aware enough to know that if I went straight from my undergrad, which remember, was, this was after five years of being an undergrad, being like the last year of DID and then four years for the arts degree. Um, if I went straight into a master's and then to a PhD, I would be doing that because I was scared. Okay. I knew it was a long-term ambition. But I also knew that if I went straight through academia without a break, I would be doing that because I was scared of the real world, because I was. Yeah. And I thought about it, and I thought, all right, I know this is what I want. I know that I want to go master's, PhD of some kind, but I don't yet know what flavor. Yeah. So I am going to take a few years and just throw myself at Irish theatre as hard as I can and see what sticks and find out what it is I'm interested in, find out what it is I'm good at. and Because a PhD is really big commitment you're saying you're going to spend between three to in my case five years on one topic researching and digging and you really want to find something that you're excited about yeah because that's a relationship that can get old really fast so graduated from trinity and basically just started hustling i remember um i talked to my students about the value of the informational coffee where it's like you say to somebody who you admire i admire you can I buy you a coffee and just hear about how you got to where you are? And I remember I chatted to Aideen Howard at the Abbey and just said, I'm really fascinated about uh, literary management. Can I buy you a coffee? And off the end of that, she said, well, you know, we're looking for readers. Would you like to be readers? I was like, yes, I would. Please. Yes, I would. Um, there was a wonderful, uh, she's now a lecturer in Canada, um, uh, in Karen Fricker, who was one of the co-founders of Irish Theatre Magazine. Yes. And same thing, I was like, I admire you. Can I buy you a coffee? I'd love to hear about how you like combine being an academic with being a critic. And off the back of that, she said, "Oh, you know, this this publication called Irish Theatre Magazine is looking for fringe critics, and then they're looking for 
an admin assistant and after that they're looking for a general manager so that led to that and I remember uh, she then recommended me to the glorious Maura O'Keefe who's looking for a production assistant for Selena Cartmill and Cyra Productions version of Titus Andronicus. Whatever happened to that play or anyone who was in it? I mean, there were some unknowns there. I think, oh, was it was oh, I mean, no one's heard of Owen Ferrari or Owen Rowe or Aidan Kelly since. Basically. No, or Ruth Negger or Ty Murphy no. or Aidan Turner. Aidan Turner, no. You know, yeah, it was a small scale. something, but. Is it true that there were scalpers selling tickets for like 75 quid a head outside? <laughs> I heard stories that there was like the lads come down from the point selling tickets to Neil Diamond to sell tickets for Tigers outside the project. I was backstage frantically hanging up things because I went from production assistant to assistant producer to costume assistant to wardrobe assistant across course. the course. That was, that show was a learning curve. Um, so I never saw kind of the outside of the theatre for a few weeks. But I do know that it very quickly, very, like it was like a week-long Hamilton. Yeah. It went yeah, very quickly from like, it went very quickly from like, oh, this is a great cast, and you know, it's gonna be. It looks like you know, everyone knows a bit of Shakespeare to being like, this is something really special. Yeah. And that was, I mean, entirely aside from the fact that that was a beautiful show, from what I could see backstage, clutching coats for people to put on, it was also just a masterclass in professional grace, because the people who were working on that, the ones who are like absolutely at the top of their game, like who you know owed nothing to no one were the ones who would always, hey, how are you? How's it going? Oh, you look really tired. Are you okay? And I remember I screwed, I screwed up once with, um, I accidentally put the belt that went with Owen Rose costume as Titus Andronicus on the wrong hanger. And this wasn't just like, oh, he didn't have a belt, whatever. This was the belt he used as a tourniquet for a key point where he cuts off his hand and we couldn't find it. And he, he um, improvised something on stage and made it work. And I remember, I'm like 22, and I'm like a young 22. I'm like, I ruined everything for Owen Rowe. Oh my God, the axe is going to fall. I have to like, and he came over afterwards and said, hey, listen, I'm really sorry to bother you. Did we find that belt? It's just, it, it was a little bit tricky. Do we have it for next time? And I said, I'm so sorry, Owen Rowe. And he was just so gracious about it. And... I remember Selene afterwards came after, and I was like, the director's got, you know, this huge production on her shoulder, she's going to yell at me, and she was like, can we just make sure that that doesn't happen again, because I know that I could see that he wanted it for the scene, so would you mind? And this was a revelation to me, the fact that I wouldn't get a bollocking for screwing up something yeah. that did affect the show, yeah. but that there was just that care for those around them, that everyone could do their best work, and that that included not taking out frustrations or fear or you know righteous irritation on a junior who'd screwed up so that for me was always I always remembered that the people that I you know who were like giants of Irish theatre were just the most gracious professional kind human beings so as as first experiences go in the real world not a bad one not bad going um, let's talk a little about the Irish theatre magazine um, because I think there's a generation that have come through, I guess, since the last series of this, that won't remember it, mm. uh, particularly won't remember the physical, you know, printed copy in your hands, which is a remarkable thing. Mm. Um, I would have certain feelings about the state of drama criticism in Ireland at the moment, <laughs> which I may or may not go into at a later time. Um, but it talk to me about why it was special, and allow me to put words in your mouth for a second while I say... 
the idea of having the lack of time pressure of turning around and review for like a day or two days later for the Irish Times or something and also the scope to go long form on it presumably certainly from my perspective were its strengths why do you think it was as good as it was? Oh okay that's such a great question because the compliment built in. Yeah, straight with this. Um, well, again, I started there as an admin assistant working with Nick Quaife, who's now at, I think, the Irish Arts Centre. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, by the way, I'm going to be leaving. They're looking for a general manager. And I was like, I would like a job, please. And the thing about this was back when Irish Theatre Magazine, which did exactly what it says in the tin, uh, was still in print format. And it was like, it was, if you remember, it was gorgeous. It really was. It was so glossy and beautiful. And... And like you said, it was, uh, oh, I gotta get this wrong, it was a quarterly. Yeah. So, you know, you were not going to get to put a pull quote of Angus Oak McAnally is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to get those quotes the best time before. <laughs> uh, you, you couldn't get pull quotes from it. But it, they were longer form uh, reviews. I think they tend to be around 750 words and like a 200 word review now in, in a newspaper is, is rare. Yeah. They had space for images, so they you could have beautiful kind of uh, glossy images of the shows. They also had a huge amount of space for not everyone, and that was always a regret. But like the lead creative roles, like it wasn't just you know play by playwright directed by so and so, and you might mention one or two actors across the course of your very you know the, for the two hundred word reviews. This was you we listed the creative team first, and then we did the review, and it could also you know. Th- the relationship between criticism and art is at its best fruitful uh, and rigorous and demands much of on both sides. It's always a little kind of fractious. There's always tension. Um, but Irish Theatre Magazine could respond to the industry. So I think I remember Joe Vanek saying, you'd list directors and actors and you do not list designers. And that is misrepresenting, you know, our profession. And we're like, yeah. Fair point. You're right. And the next issue, uh, we included designers as well. Um, the people who were doing the reviews tend to be people who were, you know, it wasn't a case of, hey, sports guy, you know, we need somebody to cover this show. Go write 200 words about it. Uh, as I understand how newspapers work. Precisely. Um, no, uh, I'm being glib. But they were people, they were quite often academics, scholars, professional theatre critics who who cared about the industry, mm-hmm. who held productions to a high standard, but also generally people who understood what the work it takes just to get something on the stage and who judged it with that knowledge. As and that there's a difference between the Abbey and the Beauties. Yeah, exactly. So I think that was the beautiful thing about it. And like the people working on it were brilliant. There was, when I was there, I think it was, Susan Collie was doing design, Peter Crawley, uh, was our news editor. Patrick Lonergan was head of reviews, uh, who's now the chair of drama at uh, NUI Galway. And uh, Helen Meany was the editor. And it was just a really wonderful time. And it was uh, a wonderful artifact. And I, I have taught a theatre criticism class before. And the thing I always tell my students is, right, right you have three obligations as a critic. You are, you are beholden to three courts. The first court is you owe something to the people who've spent their time and their lives making that show. That is not to say that you're not to be critical, but sure. you need to understand the sheer labor that goes into something and that every choice that is made is always trying to do something good, even if you think it didn't succeed. This is their livelihood. 
you need to hold that weight and be aware of that and be respectful of that, if not kind of plumassing when writing. So you owe something to those people who made that show. You also owe something to the audiences. People buy tickets based on your reviews. And as we know, theatre is not a, it's an expensive habit. Yep. Uh, it's a good addiction, but it is an expensive one. And, you know, if you are trying to be kind to a show and you're like, oh, you know, they tried, four stars, uh, and somebody spends 35 quid on a ticket, not only are they going to be righteously ticked off at you because you misrepresented something to them, they might never go back to theatre again. Mm. So you owe something to that audience. And I said the third court you are beholden to is the archive. Not as much now, we've got fabulous video recording equipment and whatnot, but particularly, like, even then, quite often a uh, review and a long-form review is a luxury. Mm. That was the artifact that was left after a show, after it's, you know, it's, it's an evanescent art form, after it disappeared. So I was saying, you know, if you spend a paragraph on an analogy that you think is incredibly witty and clever and well-sculpted and that somebody who works on the show or sees the show will get, but somebody 20 years down the line is pulling this out of the archives to understand the work of this company, is like, I have no idea what actually happened on stage. So that was, I think, something that Irish Theatre Magazine had the space and the time to do well, was to be beholden to those three courts, to the artists, to the audience, and to the archives. So I think, and again, there will always be tension between criticism and arts, but I think when Irish Theatre Magazine was at its best, there was a real respect for Irish theatre and a wish to kind of be part of the conversation about what makes Irish theatre great and, you know, what is its future. Yeah, I mean, I don't see the relationship between critic and artist as as antagonistic as other people do. I mean, mm-hmm. as I think you know, we've a long-standing policy at Rise that we publish yeah. every single review, good, bad and indifferent, um, which is great when you get nice ones because you can do it with impunity and go, yeah. ah, I don't feel like a dickhead about this because <laughs> I put all the bad ones out. But then you got to put the bad ones out. You know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's important to have a healthy, vibrant, knowledgeable and respected mm. theatre critic ecosystem, you know, alongside the theatre ecosystem because, I mean, for all the reasons you said, in terms of... Uh, in terms of the archive, posterity, and also in terms of just keeping the conversation and the dialogue around the industry going, around the business going, I think it's vital. Um, when did you go to America? Then, <laughs> you left us like so many before. I did, I did, I came back. You did, that's true. Um, when did you go to the States and why? So, uh, as I said, I knew that I wanted eventually, like, I knew that I wanted to go into academia. I knew that I wanted to go for my doctorate. With an Irish theatre magazine, one day I was going through our archives, and by that I mean I was rifling through the shelf where we stuffed the old copies, and I was reading through a back copy, and there was this feature on this thing called dramaturgy, which I had never heard of. And it was an honest-to-God light bulb moment because it was that thing, oh my God, this is a job? So being a nerd loving research and debate and listening to people talking about their ideas or how they make a show and asking good questions and giving feedback and being a critic but being a critic who's there on the side of the show you know offering the notes when they can still be used to like strengthen or you know bash ideas against this is a job magical 
and it was the first time I'd heard of it and it was a mode like oh this this kind of ticks every box right and in that article they talked about uh, kind of training modes and since uh, Nein see Dutch so the dramaturg is king in Germany and uh, I could not go there because I can't speak the language and the other place they talked about was the Yale School of Drama which has one of the uh, I'm biased obviously but one of the best English language dramaturg training programs in uh, the world sure and also the weight of Ivy League Yale behind it and everything else that goes along with that doesn't hurt yeah. honestly doesn't hurt and their, so their program as well, as well as me being like, oh my god, this is like all the best bits about this thing that I love. They had a program which was an MFA, a Master of Fine Arts, in dramaturgy and dramatic criticism. And those three years would be spent uh, equal parts kind of research, uh, learning about the theories and critical ideas of dramaturgy. Production work, you were always working on shows. Okay. Always working on shows across three years. You really got a breadth of experience. You know, you had to you had to walk the walk as well as talk the footnotes. Yes. Uh, they also put a big emphasis on professional development. You got you know, you got you got an experience at every level. Like you got to be a costume runner, you got to be an usher at their theatre, but I also got to work as a co managing editor for their magazine uh, theatre. I got to be uh, an artistic associate and I think a literary associate in the literary department for the Yale Repertory Theatre and the Binger Centre for New Drama. So it was all of these things. And at the end of those three years of getting all the best bits, you could progress that MFA to a DFA, to a Doctorate of Fine Arts. So it was a direct progress from a very practical, hands-on and intellectually rich way through academia, through theatre academia particularly, and on to a doctorate. So yeah, so I was like, oh that sounds, that sounds quite nice. I think, I think, I think I would like that please. Was the move across the Atlantic a big move given that the Atlantic is a big ocean and it's a long way from home and it's a completely different experience? Oh yeah, oh it was. So I, I didn't tell anyone I applied to Yale. I assumed I wasn't going to get in. Okay. Uh, and when I did, I... Oh, I remember I was in the Irish Theatre Magazine office and we had our offices next door to Guna Nua. Yes. And I got the... E- I had just come back from the interview in the States. I was jet-lagged to hell. And I got the email saying, we are delighted to say that you have been accepted. And I rang my mother and burst into loud, sobby tears. Like, I think I'm going to Yale. And like I think uh, David stuck his head in the door, was like everything okay? Like, Everything's wonderful. Thank you. One day you'll be head of theatre at the Arts Council. Uh. Um, that being said, I had always been a home bird. Yeah. And this was I was going I was going to the states for at least three years, probably uh, yeah, up for five to six. And that really was difficult. Um, oh God, I remember. Woo, I remember saying goodbye to my parents at the um, at the. I was going to say the airport stop. The airport, um, and just having that moment of, is this the right goal? And oh, I should add as well, like another big factor in the Yale School of Drama is they have an exceptionally generous financial aid well, package. That was something I was going to ask you the indelicate question about, particularly just given the light of it here, because I mean, for our go. I mean, when I did the three-year course in Trinity, it was, I think, 
300 quid registration a year mm-hmm. and that was it yeah it's no longer the case now here in Ireland it's up to like more than three grand now yeah and when you get to Ivy League territory in America it's a little bit pricier again it is I think uh, I think I still even have the financial aid letter somewhere it's something in the region of fees per year something in the region of 37 grand that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And it's the ecology of uh, universities and learning in America is completely different. Sure. Yes, it's, it's since our day, it's got a lot more expensive to be at university. Uh, and that is a problem for Ireland and for the UK where I teach. But I've got friends who graduated from their undergrad BA or BFA with 40 to 150 grand in debt in the States. Like, but that's so not 21, 22, you've got six-figure debt. Yeah, you've got a mortgage, basically, and, 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 and an arts degree. Yeah, which is certainly going to turn over the big books real soon. Uh, exactly. Um, so uh, my dad always says, like, you know, if you hadn't got the financial aid and the scholarships from Yale, we'd have made it work. And I was like, no, we would not. No, not was, at that level, you No, couldn't. God, no. And I wouldn't, I mean, those years in Yale was one of the best of my life so far. I couldn't, I figuratively and literally couldn't have afforded them at that yeah. price. But uh, Dean James Bundy, who had just become Dean of the school, I think two years before I came there, his one of his big moves was that he said, any student who wants to come here, finances shouldn't be the reason why they can't. So you were expected to take out a small loan uh, for the first year and bar that you got a financial aid package if you qualified. So right. if you didn't, if you couldn't afford it yourself, you got a financial aid package. And that included that you would work, you know, in the university, in the theatre, in around the school, uh, part time. But it meant that, you know, you got to be there and to just be there. And yeah, moving there was terrifying. And I lived in a dorm for the nice. first year. At twenty six years old, nice. I had to pack up my shampoo and my like shower cap and like walk down to the bathroom every morning. And I was like, I am too old for this. <laughs> but. It was, this sounds like a different way of putting it, it was like being in the best cult ever. Because it was nerve-wracking to move there, but moving somewhere to start college is a cheat because everyone arrives at the same time as you. They're excited and nerdy and passionate and mad about the same thing you are. Yeah. And they're as desperate as you are to be like, hello, new friend. Yes. <laughs> Will you hang out with me for three years? Cool. Uh, what kind of a mix did you have? Around the States, international students, all of the above? Is it a big group, a small group? is a big group so Yale School of Drama is a full conservatory and they do an MFA program that's three years and they do it in dramaturgy and dramatic criticism which is obviously the best of course but they also do acting directing playwriting technical design and production scenic design lighting design costume design projection design stage management and theatre management and I'm sure I'm forgetting something holy balls! and everyone is there for three years learning that craft having class so an average day at at Yale School of Drama or YSD, uh, classes will be scheduled between nine till two. So dramaturgy wasn't as our as kind of time intensive as the acting students. Like they had their classes from yeah. nine to two. They got a lunch break at two o'clock. Um, so classes were nine to two. If you were in rehearsal for a school show, so a, school, a show that's been directed by a directing student or that's a playwriting student's thesis piece, mm-hmm. uh, or if there was a show with the Yale Rep that you were involved in. Generally, those rehearsals will be around two to six uh, or two to seven, depending on how it's scheduled. If you were doing work study, quite often you'd be working at Yale Rep. You'd be ushering, you'd be run crew. So quite often your call will be 6.30, 7, and that could go until 11. 
And if you were doing a show at the Yale Cabaret, which is like kind of the dramat of, uh, of Yale School of Drama, the only time we generally had to rehearse for the like two and a half weeks you had to rehearse before putting up a show was between 11 to 1 a.m. And then back up again for nine the next morning? Yeah. And that is not including doing homework. Oh, yeah. And this was, now this was not every day, but this was not an unusual day. And we were lucky as, as dramaturgs, we didn't have class on Saturday, but we did a rehearsal. So this was a six day week for three years. And I used to just honestly accept and plan for the fact that at least once every semester, I would crack up. I would have a minor breakdown. That was just kind of accepted because you were, you were in the midst of all this glorious, intense work uh, with everyone who was just as kind of fried and passionate and driven as you were. And you were working these mad hours, thousands of miles from home. And it was an absolutely extraordinary time. And I've talked to um, people who, you know, uh, I think Hugh Farrell, who's a producer slash dramaturg, who also did the MFA and he's from Dublin, he's working here now. And we talked about missing it and I said, I miss it but I miss it as fairyland. It is, was a beautiful, magical experience. And if you spend the rest of your life looking back at it and trying to get back there, you'll go mad. Yeah. Uh, and I also, like, I physically can't take it now. Yeah. Uh, like, my body's just like, no, you've done your time. And um, do you want to do some name dropping of the cool people you know out there? Because <laughs> um, you know I would never name drop, ever. Oh, gosh, no, Ingo, you wouldn't dream of it. Um, what's fascinating is I'm now, I'm now, so I graduated from the MFA in 2011 and I graduated from the uh, DFA in 2016. So I was actually there for longer than most people. And most people just do a three-year cycle and I lived there for six years. So I got to see like six cohorts coming through. And I'm now at the point where I'm seeing people that I knew from acting class and from other things that go on to big stuff. Like I was there when Lupita Nyong'o like started and graduated and you know went on to win an Oscar the year afterwards and named her YSD acting class in her Oscar acceptance speech, which is amazing. I'm seeing people like appearing on shows on Netflix, on like the big kind of networks. I'm seeing people in movies. Um, you know, uh, somebody who was in my year was nominated for a Tony like a year or two out from her class. Um, and so of the six years I was living there, nothing stopped work at YSD. Like, we got blizzards relatively regularly. There would be yeah. five, six feet of snow, and you were expected to make it to class. Hell or high water. Hurricanes, you got to class. The only thing, the two things, I've only ever seen two things conclusively shut down Yale School Drama where everything stopped. And the first was a suspected shooter on campus where we all got the alert call to shelter in place. They now think it was a hoax, uh, but like we were told someone with a gun has been seen on campus. Wherever you are, lock the door, stay there. And the other thing that shut everything down was Meryl Streep. <laughs> Amazing. Who was, we got two days before she got there. We got an email saying, we're delighted that a noted alum of Yale School Drama is coming to speak. Meryl fucking Streep. Uh, and every rehearsal, everything shut down. And I remember she walked into the theatre of everybody. Oh my God, it's the Streep. We're going to see the Streep. And she just did this killer high kick walking down the aisle and just talked so really yes yeah. a terrible adjective but really about what her career was like what her time here had been like she talked uh, at yes school drama like she talked very movingly about how it had changed and changed for the better she thought 
asked Chocolate what it was like to be a celebrity and she was just and she answered questions from students who were about to graduate into this profession like actors who were asking her you know how do you handle celebrity stage managers saying you know I want to work on film sets what do you notice as like a mark of somebody you want to work with and like that was really extraordinary um, I'm going to ask the question. Go on. What is a dramaturg? Right? Because I think there's a whole heap of people out there listening who will go, yeah, I'm so glad he's asking that because I kind of have a half an idea or I know someone who says they work as a dramaturg, but I don't know that that's what it is. So for you, in terms of what is the practical application, if Rise Productions is uh, fortunate enough to have the luxury of having a dramaturg on board, what does your contribution to the process look like? That is an excellent question. Not an easy question, yeah. but an excellent question. Because the thing is, part of the reason why everyone is, is always asking you, so dramaturg, that's a thing, what is it? Is that if you ask any dramaturg what their job is, you're going to get a different answer. Like if you ask me, well, I will answer shortly, <laughs> you get one answer. If you ask you know, Thomas Conway, Hannah Slatna, Pamela McQueen, Ellie White, like any of the great dramaturgs working in Ireland right now, you'll get completely different answers. I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that a dramaturg really does tailor what they offer to a production based on what the production is looking for. It's not a, here is my set thing that I do for you and you're welcome. A lot of that as well is that there's a few different traditions working in dramaturgy and Ireland sits, interestingly, kind of at the nexus of them. So we've got things like dramaturgy, uh, and this isn't a hard and fast rule, but dramaturgy in the UK uh, network is seen more as a literary management kind yes. of strand dramaturgs would particularly work with playwrights sure. and that's in something along the lines of the best analogy is maybe an editorial role mm -hmm. it's asking questions it's uh, ask, it's um, giving feedback giving praise saying when things aren't clear offering suggestions being you know somebody to bounce ideas off of being a shoulder to cry on uh, working with the writer kind of on the script to help them find what they want to say with it uh, whilst it being very much of theirs. So kind of the UK tradition is that the, the dramaturg tends to be someone who works with writers. If you look at Germany, where or the Germanic tradition, where the dramaturg is listed just under the director, they have a much more dynamic... No, that's not, not the right word. They have a much more powerful role. They will quite often... You know, Ender Walsh says of seeing his plays in Germany that they look nothing like how he wrote them, and he loves that. And quite often that will be a dramaturg in collaboration with the director and everyone else pulling a script into its composite parts and saying, all right, here's our raw material. Let's sculpt something completely new out of it. So we've got that kind of approach to dramaturgy. And then you've got the US version of, of dramaturgy, which is kind of known as production dramaturgy. And this is the tradition that I trained in. Uh, and that is that the dramaturg works will work with writers but is also working with the whole team mm -hmm. they're working with a director as a sounding board as a kind of in-house uh, on your side critic uh, they're offering uh, quite often their role involves research that it was uh, they will dig into the history the background of the play they do when I work as a production director one of the first things I'll do is create a lexicon I will go through the script and it's like any word that is not immediately obvious I will just quickly add in a short definition, a picture, a link, a recording, something where it's like a way of making the world that those words are creating seem real and tangible and understandable and navigable. And, you know, for some plays, it's a very short thing. For Shakespeare, it can go on for pages. Yeah. 
sometimes it's offering a timeline or a history on the playwright. It's offering, you know, uh, details on how brothels in the 17th century actually worked. Fascinating. Um, I love that that's your specialist subject. <laughs> Cross the line again. I've made this two. Two in the space of half an hour. I'm feeling good. I'm very proud of you, buddy. Thanks. Um, so in the, in the American tradition of that kind of production of dramaturgy, the dramaturg will often offer research as kind of their contribution of ideas in the same way that a designer offers uh, kind of a design and visuals and the actor offers interpretation and imagination and craft and skill and a director offers their vision, their shaping. And all of these elements are working together to create a world for play. So Ireland lives somewhere between those three. And that's what I mean when I say that when you ask a dramaturg, you know, some people might be like, oh, no, I work with writers. That's my particular skill. Somebody might say, oh, I'm, I'm a production dramaturg. I offer research. Generally, it's, uh, it reacts to what the production wants. And the, given that that's been a very rambly answer to a question, I will give my, my favorite analogy for what a dramaturg does is if a playwright, a director, actors, designers, everyone, are creating a world, the dramaturg's job is to be the map maker. They are the one offering information, materials, uh, to explore a little bit further, a little bit deeper. They're the ones who might occasionally just say, ah, oh, there there be dragons, maybe we try a different route. And they are the one who, who mark down, this is our journey, this is where we're going. So that's, for me, that is my approach to dramaturgy. My, I, I am working with the explorers to help them find the path they want. You talked, you talked earlier on, is that what you say? No, you spoke earlier on, probably, is it better? I, I go talk good on podcasts. <laughs> B plus. Um, uh, thank you. Um, you spoke earlier on about discovering your passion for learning mm. through the academic system. Have you since discovered a similar passion for teaching? Because the way you talk about it, it sounds like you really have. That's a lovely question. So teaching is an academic, a lecturer. If you're working, if you're one of the very lucky people who gets to work as a full-time lecturer in university, uh, the job has three roles. Uh, teaching is about a third of that uh, role, and I'll come back to that. Then there is research. Every academic is expected to, literally, the job is to create new knowledge. That every article or book or paper that you create is about adding to our understanding and new ways of seeing the discipline that we work in. And the third strand of that is service. That means that can mean something service within the discipline. So that can mean you sit on committees for the university. It can mean that you're part of a, an organizational group for a conference. But it can also mean things like you go out to schools to talk to students who want to do drama to say, well, you know, here's what our course offers if that's what you're interested in. So that's kind of the, uh, whenever people ask me during summer, oh, you're on holiday, and I'm like, I am not on holiday. I was at my desk at 7 a.m. this morning. Also, how are you? Hello. Um, so teaching is, as I said, it is a part of that, but it's not the whole of the job. But it is such a joy. Really? Oh, Ingo, it's a joy. Even with some those millennials. <laughs> my students are, the only word I can say is they are dotes. Excellent. They're, I mean... Teaching, teaching is something you're passionate about. And teaching, when it is at its best, you are working with young people who are as passionate as you are about something. You're all just big old nerds. It is their first time meeting some parts of this discipline. You get to be there when they read a play that blows their mind for the first time. Or when they suddenly discover, wait, stage management, that's what I care about. Or when they, you know, they can suddenly say, oh my God, 
you know, gender. I never thought of gender as a lens of reading a play. This is amazing. Or I think about theater now as, as something different than what I did. And you're there as you just that's there making all these discoveries. And they get become as excited as you are about it. But they're also bringing a completely new perspective to it. Mm. And they will see things, uh, or they'll see things in ways that would never have occurred to me. Like a play that I've told five or six times. Suddenly when somebody will like make a comment, I'm like, oh my God, I never saw that before. And what I, what I love about teaching is that I don't think I've ever had a class where I finished in the same place I started. Even if it's one I've taught a hundred times. Sure. It is... I said earlier that dramaturgy, what I loved about it was you've got to have like the really good conversations where, you know, you're talking about something that you're passionate about and you're both excited about and you're challenging each other and you're from that conversation, both of you come to a new understanding of something that you really care about. Teaching is like that for 50 minute chunks <laughs> at regular times each week. Now it's, there's a lot of frustrations with teaching. There's a lot of, there's a lot of administration. There's a lot of pressure on it. But at its core, it is sharing a joy in something with people who are finding new ways to experience that joy. Can I ask you about being based outside of Dublin? Because, I mean, by definition or by necessity, like the dark doesn't go to Dingle because population density means that it wouldn't necessarily be all that viable. And equally, a lot of the action in Irish theatre is focused around Dublin for good or for ill. Mm -hmm. But over the years, with I mean, including your time on a different continent, <laughs> but also you spent time based in Galway and now based up in Derry. What is the experience like where you don't have maybe eight or ten different theatres within 15 minutes of you? Um, what is the experience like being outside of the capital city? Yeah, that's a really great question. So as you said, I spent two years, a year and a half, two years in Galway. And again, this was me with like uh, Catherine Sheehy, who's a wonderful dramaturg, describes a dramaturg as being one foot in the grave of academia and one foot on the banana peel of production. And that's always kind of how I've done it. Most of the places I've lived in and worked in, it has been one foot in academia. And you know, theatre's my sexy mistress on the side. Nice. Um, so I was living in Galway because I was given the opportunity to cover research leave for the wonderful Dr. Charlotte MacGyver in the Department for Drama, Theatre and Performance in Anyway Galway. Uh, so I was teaching there for, I think, two or three semesters, which was a delight. And I mean, Galway is a buzz. There is such a strong sense of identity there and a real earned pride in the work that they do. And it's incredible teaching students where they're like, there's such a vibrant, independent, arts ecology that you know the arts festivals is incredible like what an up could you imagine as a student like getting to see all those shows and that international work and seeing irish companies like bringing their like big guns to the stage metaphorically sometimes literally yeah um there's also there's also like on the less kind of you know spectacular and high pro uh, like you know high glory end of things. There's there's such a strong fringe work there. Yeah. I got to work a little bit with um, the Galway Theatre Festival, which is doing some really exciting work. And they had um, works in development where they just said, listen, we want to give people space as part of the festival to work on something that they're excited about. We, you know, we can't, we're not going to give them a drama trick full time, but we'd love if you could like once or twice come in and chat to them about their ideas, just give them somebody to like bat, bat ideas around with offer feedback. I got to work on a few different shows, and I think in particular, particularly Emma O'Grady was working yes. on a piece called "What's 
what's the good of looking well when you're rotten on the inside, which she then developed, and I think last year presented as a full piece, brilliant full piece, in the Goi Theatre Festival, and I think it came to the Fringe as well this year. And there was that real kind of, grassroots gets bandied around a lot, but there's that real grassroots approach to, you make, you get your mates together, you make a show, but in Galway that, getting your mates together, making a show quite often means you're gonna make a kick-ass, groundbreaking, beautiful, well-sculpted show. I mean, stuff like Moonfish's work is mm. utterly beautiful. You know, don't know if you've heard of this group, but um, Druid do some work in Galway. And... I, 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 think I think they're the open-comers to watch. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's remarkable for me, the idea that if you were in Galway, technically you're outside of the Pale, you're outside of the capital city, but that just taken for granted, you have someone of the calibre of Gary and Druid on your doorstep with world premieres of Enda Walsh plays mm-hmm. starring Killian Murphy produced by Landmark pretty much every year. Like, that's not a bad situation to be in. No, and I think it's the, what I love about Go Away in particular is that like, you know, theatre is a spectrum and an ecology and you've got the giants, like the ones who have their foundations like buried down at the bedrock, like Druid and the Go Away Arts Festival. But you've got everything in between as well. Like you've got small fringe groups, you've got the theatre festival, you've got more established companies, and there is just such a an amazing kind of teeming infrastructure there. Yeah, working there uh, for a couple of years was a very special time. Um, I want to ask you about waking the feminists, right. if I can, you because may. your role within the movement, I guess I'm going to call it, um, was quite a specific one mm. in terms of applying your. Uh, your inner theatre nerd and academic research mm-hmm. brain to it. And so you were heavily involved in, co- in essentially just getting down in black and white the reality of yeah. what the situation was. Um, what was that experience like in terms of collating all that information? And were you shocked or were you still capable of being shocked at that stage with the findings? Mm, that's a great question. So I, as part of Waking the Feminists, worked with the research committee. So this was a group of uh, people, uh, all of whom had uh, at least masters, many of whom had doctorates or were working on doctorates, who said, we care about this. These are the skills we can bring to the table. What can we do with them? So we were led by, and I do not think she gets enough credit because her work was phenomenal, Brenda Donahue uh, and Kiro Dowd as well. Like they were just powerhouses in leading this. Uh, and then it was myself, Kira Murphy, uh, uh, Kathleen Colley, and Kate Harris. And basically, we had a big part of the power and passion of Waking the Feminist was the anecdotal, was that we were hearing the testimonies spoken out loud in a way that was often uncomfortable and raw and important and honest that was making it clear this is what our experience being women in Irish theatre is this is our reality we don't talk about it and we need to and off the back of that at the larger committee meetings we're saying all right everyone has the sense that there's an imbalance here that something's uneven that we're not seeing fair representation of numbers but we don't actually have the data yet yeah so they turned to us as the kind of academics and said can we find numbers on this can we get let's see if what we're feeling is borne out by the actual cult artifacts so we spent uh, months just digging through archives mm-hmm. and looking we use primarily for data we use programs mm-hmm. and saying all right this theater had this many productions this year what was the gender breakdown for cast director uh, author, 
uh, whatever role that uh, shape that took. Sure. Um, designers, uh, just to understand, like, are we, you know, is that sense, is that feeling of injustice accurate or is it out of portion? And when we got those numbers, we've been working with this data for so long that we kind of stopped, it stopped being shocking. It was just numbers because we were, they were always right in front of us. And I remember we were presenting graphs at the last Waking the Feminist event uh, in the Abbey uh, and they put us on last and I thought, oh God, no, we're going to kill in a bad way. Like we're going to hear all these incredible, you know, speakers and women and all this incredible testimony and then you're going to put the numbers up and the data and we're going to lose the room. So we're standing there very, it was myself, Brenda Danu and Kira Dad, and we're standing there very nervously. So if you turn, if you turn to this slide, uh, you can see on this graph, and I remember we were hearing gasps from the room. I remember the gasps. I watched, was there a video feed of this? Uh, I yes. Was I yeah. remember watching the video feed and hearing the gasps. Yeah. It was remarkable. It was, and it was, while presenting, hearing those gasps and having that instant reality of like, oh yeah, we've been staring at this for long, and again, it, it's lost, it's important. These are really shocking numbers. We now have the cold hard data that says, yeah, there's a gender imbalance. But also it was the antidote to don't be worrying your pretty little head about it. I'm sure it's not as bad as you hysterical women are making it out to be. Yeah. But you know, whereas you can try and tone police a hysterical woman, you can't argue with the black and white figures. Yeah. And once it's there, you go, fucking debate me now, motherfucker. If that's not, <laughs> that's, my, that's my pocket six zero one. But like that's, you know, balls out, just go, debate yeah. this. Because, or justify this. Yeah. Because at that point you can't. It is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like we had 10 years of data. We had looking at publicly funded organisations mm-hmm. and we were able to say, this is the picture. This is, this is what Irish theatre has looked like for the last 10 years. And we need to make a choice of, is this what we want it to continue to look like for the next? Do you think it's fixable? Fixable? Yeah. I mean, I think with, with Will uh, and with measurable outcomes is it possible to fix it i think we're seeing a huge shift now and i think i think one of the great things about having cold hard data is you're like no here are facts yeah but i think one of the difficult things is saying right let's let's fix let's fix these facts how do we flip those numbers uh i I don't think that works I think what we're looking for is a culture shift. And I think we are, I think we have a long way to go, but I think we are starting to feel it. The anecdotal one that I keep coming back to, and I'm not sure if I've said it yet on this, but now's as good a time as any. Um, in series one, I that anecdotal thing you hear about women not putting themselves forward, mm-hmm. and you know, why you end up with the all-male panels on whatever, is that women go, oh no, sure, I couldn't, I'm only me. Mm-hmm. And in the first series of this podcast, there were a number of ludicrously successful, high-profile women mm-hmm. who would be incredible guests who, who went, no I, I, no, I wouldn't be comfortable or I, I don't feel the time or I, I just, they were uncomfortable putting themselves forward. Cut to this series, not one woman has said no. Mm. I've had a big enthusiastic wow. yes from every single woman. Now, not that that's putting the responsibility on women to try and fix it solely and most men can just sit back in the sidelines and let you guys do all the work as usual. <laughs> um, but just that I do think that mindset yeah. has shifted. I do think the beginning of that cultural change is going uh, in that, it, it, that in no longer it's, oh no, I couldn't. It's a, why wouldn't I? Yeah. Which I think is really useful and important. 
I completely agree. I think we're at a really interesting and a really difficult but important moment right now, you know, post-waking the feminists, with Me Too coming out, with all the kind of sort of scandals happening around the globe and the arts being particularly high profile. And I'm uh, so, uh, up at Elster University, uh, where I'm a lecturer, we're starting to pull together a project looking at sexual harassment in the arts across the island. And it's, it's I think it's like with Waking the Feminists, it's not that we weren't having these conversations. It's not that, you know, people who worked in the arts, particularly women, weren't aware that there's a problem. It's that we were having those conversations, you know, in the flowing tide yeah. after a show or, you know, at a conference over the coffee break. They were kind of private, eye roll, you know, status quo conversations. And I think now that there is, there's an understanding of the importance of visibility hmm. and how much bravery that takes how difficult that can be and like how uncomfortable that can be but there is a willingness to talk publicly about difficult issues and to i think what i'm hearing from kind of you talking about like women coming back like yes i will be on your pound you're out your podcast angus of mcmanelli it's an awareness of fuck yeah let's take pride in what we've done and if somebody says I want to talk to you about what, what you've done, then knowing that it's worth talking about. Yeah. Um, now that you are Dr. Dean, if you go right the way to the top, will you become Dean Dean? <laughs> the world's shortest voicemail message. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Tanya, you are my hero, as you know. Um, that was a fascinating chat. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm delighted we finally got to do it all these years down the road. Thank you so much, Ango. This was a joy. <laughs> So there you have it, the great Tanya Dean. So delighted to finally have Tanya on the podcast as a guest. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings on around the country. At the Abbey Theatre, they have the last few performances of Class with the great Stephen Jones, Will O'Connell, and of course the brilliant Sarah Morris. Um, they are completely sold out, but I know that they are trying to facilitate returns. So it is worth uh, giving, giving the Abbey a buzz or even heading down, I think, an hour before showtime to see if you can get yourself lucky and get in there. At the Gate Theatre, we have Look Back in Anger with an amazing cast, including the brilliant Claire Dunn, Ian Toner, Lloyd Cooney, and the brilliant Vanessa M as well. At the Gaiety Theatre, it's John B. Keane's Sive, and I was at the opening night of that this week, and it was lovely to hang out with all the Keane family, who are always so gracious about my grandparents, Ray and Ronnie, and the connection between the two families, and all the work that they made together, so I wish them well with the run there. Um, at the Olympia coming up, it's the night Joe Dolan's car broke down. At the Borgosh Energy Theatre, it's Scylla the Musical. At Theatre Upstairs on the road, I guess, it's Murder of Crows because they're coming to Project. They're going down to Garter Lane in Waterford and they'll also be at the Lyric in Belfast. Then the new theatre has Home and that'll be followed by After the End starring the brilliant Maria Guyver and Paul Livingston. That's an absolutely cracking show, well worth checking out. Uh, Walkinstown is still going at Smock Alley and is truly hilarious. Hilarious. Uh, and then the Lear, the next of the graduating showcases from the Lear are coming up. It's a double bill. It's Dalliance and Laurent. I say it's a double bill. The two of them are coming on are going on at the same time, but you don't go and see the two together. Although I guess you could if you got one of the matinees, but do go and check out the uh, the next batch of awesome actors coming from the Lear, coming to take our jobs. Um, Dreacht in Blanche has the time machine and at the Viking in Clontarf, they have from under the bed, but I have a feeling that might be sold out already, though do give Laura and Andy a shout there. 
there and if they can accommodate you at all they will at Bewley's they have looking deadly and at Project they have if we got some more cocaine I could show you how I love you starring the brilliant Alan Mahan and they also have the world premiere of Marco Rose new play The Approach from the all-conquering landmark productions starring Kathy Velton, Derv Lacrotti and Ashling O'Sullivan need I say more um, The Everyman in Cork has How It Is and The Love Hungry Farmer coming up in Galway out west of the town hall they have Drinking in America starring Liam O'Brien and at the Lime Tree in Limerick they have The Friday Night Effect and Someone Who'll Watch Over Me coming up and then as we head north to the Lyric in Belfast they have the Threepenny Opera at the moment and also After the End that we just mentioned and Murder of Crows that will be up there too and that's absolutely one not to be missed so look that is us that is episode 13 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week 